we might look back on this time and it might not be seen as only the age of AI. Or... We want to become first-class human beings, not second-class robots. Yes, we need the advancement of technology, but we can't neglect the role of leaders. Welcome back to another episode of Wise on Air, the show where we talk to the world's leading minds on the future of education. My name is Bassem, producer of the show. Today we're tackling a critical piece of the education puzzle, leadership. But research shows investment in school leadership has declined in the past 20 years. And seismic shifts in learning and many schools lack leadership to guide educators in our uncertain future. My guests on today's episode of Wise on Air want to transform education by transforming leadership. Dr. Asma Al-Fadala, Dominic Register, and Anthony McKay lead Wise All In, a network reimagining school leadership through research, training, and advocacy. Their goal? Modernize education to prepare learners for today's world. But change takes more than policy. We'll hear how their lived experiences fueled their drive for systematic change, from early role models to seeing inequities firsthand, their journeys show why leadership matters in the education spectrum. In our conversation, we discuss the challenges we face, why leadership is critical, and how they're building a community to transform education's future. Stay tuned as we explore their vision, insights, and why education transformation starts with leadership transformation. Asma, Dominic, Anthony, thank you very much for joining me on Wise on Air today. Uh, I want to start this conversation off from more of a personal lens from all of you taking turns. So growing up, what are some of the most memorable or influential learning experiences that have impacted you in your life? They can be good or bad, by the way. So maybe we can jump in with Dr. Asma starting off on this. Well, thank you, Bassem. I think for me as a mother of five children and having a full-time job, in 2009, I went to Cambridge to complete my PhD. So raising five children has been the most challenging, but also enriching experience of my life. I think the skills that I gained, uh, it's applicable now in, in the workplace. So I had to juggle both responsibilities, you know, that tested my time management, resilience, ability to balance both responsibilities. At that time, my kids, the youngest was two months old and my oldest was 10 years old. So it required careful planning, dedication and flexibility. Thanks, Basim. When I was at university, I was joint honours across two different faculties and the history department had long before recognised that the vast majority of their undergraduates weren't going to become professional historians. So the way they had organised the learning for students was there was a lot of group work, there was a lot of presentations that we had to give, a lot of project-based approaches. But my other faculty, the classics faculty, found it inconceivable that all of their undergraduates wouldn't want to go on to become Latin or Greek teachers. And so there was none of that. And so having those two contrasting learning styles was absolutely invaluable. I think the other really memorable learning experience is, is the kind of individual attention from a teacher. I was lucky to have an absolutely fantastic history teacher when I was at secondary school who took a real interest, helped me with different things, it was incredibly encouraging and motivating. And that the importance of teacher-student relationship, which is still an area of education research, which new insights and understandings are coming all the time at the moment, made a big difference. Mm. And then, of course, there's parenthood, all the things that you learn from your children on a daily basis. 
No, absolutely. No, I resonate with the point about having a, a good teacher that takes interest in you. I couldn't agree more. That was, you know, w w until I had that, I feel like I didn't really see the value of learning. But we can get more into that as we progress in the conversation. Anthony, how about you kick us off here? Uh, well, Bassett, I need to mm -hmm. declare that I'm the son of a Methodist minister. If you are the minister of a church in a community that is active, you are a significant person in the lives of people. And so I witnessed the purpose of my father as the driving force in his life. And purpose and agency also, I think, shape a lot of who we are and what we do and the contribution that we make. I certainly witnessed the fact that he was more than, a, than an intellectual. He had fantastic cognitive powers, but he was equally social and emotional. And I think if you're going to be active in human affairs, it helps if you haven't had an emotional bypass so that you can actually connect with people. I mean, we know it now, right? A kind of post-COVID world without thinking about the cognitive, social, emotional and well-being means you haven't learned a lesson at all. But I think I learned that lesson from day one. The other couple of things I'd say that shaped me were, one, I witnessed a person who exercised humility. Now, Dominic will say that that obviously was not something that I took on personally, but I did, I did have a, a father who was always connected to everybody with a common touch, a capacity to communicate and who saw the value in every single person and was able to think carefully about his own place in the scheme of things and not to do what many of us do and that is not exercise enough uh, self-regulation and to keep your ego in check. So therefore, those characteristics of people who I think go on to lead I learned that very, very early on. Lead and develop yourself first and then ask whether you're adequate to lead others is worthwhile to remember. The final thing I'd say is I learned the power of community. Nothing ever got done by yourself. I've reflected on it in recent years and realized that so much I aspired to be was being witnessed in those early days. Now, uh, given the fact that Asma and Dominic have claimed children, I will claim two, boy and a girl, And I'll claim that I would have had more if I had been home more. But, you know, I was working so hard, I was hardly ever home. So, you know, it takes time to have children, right? So getting two was not bad, really, under the circumstances. I think it might be worth mentioning to the listeners that Anthony is actually tuning in at 5 a.m. from his time zone to have this conversation. So really, we can see that perseverance to your work <laughs> through that itself. But I'm, I'm noticing a pattern and a trend here between uh, everything that all of you said, which is that be it through motherhood, through parenting or through role models growing up in your lives, it seems that this concept of, of following a good role model or a leader is something that really influenced you growing up and growing and shaped your perspective on the world. So that's a largely positive thing to hear. I would like to know about some of the challenges or failures that you have noticed in, be it the way the world is or our education systems, and how have those problems shaped what you have decided to do in your lives in response to those problems? Well, basically, in the office, we have full-time job. And when we go home, we also have full-time job. And, you know, just reflecting back onto my PhD uh, in Cambridge with five children, uh, of course, my husband was there to support me. But balancing the demanding responsibilities of academia and motherhood was really hard because I had to attend lectures, meeting deadlines, 
and being available physically and emotionally for my children. And that really needs a lot of time management and prioritization. Something I really learned and it's applicable now in the workplace and in life in general. It pushed me to develop exceptional organizational skills, leadership, as um, Tony and Dominic mentioned, and find the creative ways to optimize my time at work, in my social life, and with family. But also emotionally was tough, feeling guilty about missing out one important moments, for example, with my children. Uh, but also taught me to build my support system, uh, either my husband, my family, even my children, to support me and to support them. Having an open conversation and communication with our children, I think it's key. And the same in the office, communication with our colleagues uh, to achieve what we need to do. But overall, I think these challenges have shown me the power of resilience and adaptability and never give up. I've learned to lean on my support system and believe in myself when, you know, even things are really complicated and uncertain. Loved what you said about the support system needing to be two directional that it isn't just extractive, it's also regenerative. It's what you put back in to the people who support you. I wanted to, to come back, Basin, to something you said at the, at the beginning of this question about you know the importance of role models and pivotal relations and how we all answered your first question. I, you know, that speaks to a really fundamental truth about education, doesn't it? That it is much more relational than it is transactional. And I think one of the challenges that education systems globally are grappling with at the moment it's has probably been too much of a drift towards the transactional nature of it it's about the qualifications um, that students leave the systems with above and beyond anything else um, the education systems that we all experienced and which are still dominant globally are modeled on a kind of capitalist economic model so there's a zero-sum quality to them there's a winner you know there are winners and losers and the that economic model and education model was perhaps right for the 20th century when there was a period of big global growth, but it's unsustainable in the longer term. What we're trying to do with our collective work with All In is offer alternatives to that, where it's education which forefronts collaboration rather than competition, which rewards and recognises the most effective collaborators rather than the ones who kind of go out. And, you know, that it feels such an important trajectory to be on at this point in the 21st century where with everything that we know about planetary boundaries and you know climate crisis risk of global recession and what perpetual growth does for that if we can think about how does education support the kind of human interactions which are going to lead to much more sustainable living and thriving that can happen within that then it's going to be a much better 21st century um, for future generations um, if we can help move education systems in that direction. No, and I, I saw you uh, so maybe, nodding maybe, the entire me, time, <laughs> Anthony. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm going to come back to your, to your point about the challenges. So I think that first point is that I lived in an environment where we, we would move every five years. And so we'd be moving from places of disadvantage and vulnerability, of inequity and lack of justice and fairness. In other words, we would be in an environment where many people were challenged. Churches gather those people and you see all walks of life and all conditions. But then you might move to another place which is privileged and you witness a completely different 
slice of human nature. And it strikes me that having had multiple communities over a period of time in my early years, I took on that sort of sense of injustice that many people experienced, a lack of fairness, what we would now call the equity challenge. And I thought to myself, hey, this simply is not fair and <laughs> we should do something about it. That's when inequity was less extreme than it is now. And the second thing I quickly say is that in the 1970s, I went to do postgrad studies in London and it was a time of huge radical thinking about the future of education. I decided not to go into the ministry. I studied theology for two years and in the second year where we were required to do the exegesis of Genesis, I thought this was not a good way to spend my life. So I conveyed that to my father and he agreed with me. He said, I think it might be better if you do something different. So education became the passion, but it was the time of Ivan Illich and de-schooling of John Holt, right? This was actually liberating the oppressed. And I spent a couple of years deeply believing that we needed to change fundamentally the learning system that we had. We used the word transformation in the 1970s. So I have kept an absolute commitment to the fact that we ultimately, thank God, some of us keep on living because it's going to take a while before we witness the transformation that Dominic and Asma have talked about. But that's the driving motivating force. And we've often talked about this as being, you know, reform or change. We now know that we have got to change the measures of success. We have got to change the definition of excellence. We have got to think about, as Dominic said before, a very different way of being able to ensure that we are able to look after ourselves, look after others, and look after the planet. Finally, what? As a penny dropped, right? <laughs> you know, we had Unger last year that for the first time ever convened a summit on transforming education. It, the great thing is that there's a period right now of intense activity and commitment to doing what we three have all committed ourselves to. It's been a challenge, Basin, but I have to say our time has come. No, that was eloquently said, Antony. And as you were speaking, I was thinking, and this applies to the entire panel today, you saw those problems affecting your world. You moved multiple times, which is something I relate to. I went through a similar experience growing up and I saw different uh, situations, varying degrees of privilege, which made me sort of open up my eyes to the problems of the world. But I'm wondering what drew you to education as the answer to solving those problems, because many people might steer a different direction to address those same problems. And I extend that question to everyone here today, because it seems like you were all nodding as uh, Anthony was speaking. It seems like you, you would agree with many of the ideas he shared about transforming education. So it'd be great to know what actually brought you to think we need to fix education in order to solve these problems. Well, you know, Basim, I, I got when I graduated from high school, I got a scholarship to study medicine. But because of the options available uh, in Qatar at that time, I went to Qatar University, graduated as a physics teacher. So I started my career as a, as a physics teacher. Just to go back to your question, I think uh, focusing on education and more specifically on leadership, for me, it came a, through a combination of passion, research and experiences. So I started as a teacher, then school leader, moved from working with the schools in schools to working with Rand Corporation as policy analyst, 
working with policymakers for the policymakers and several projects, not only related to education, but for our healthcare, transportation, accreditation for schools and others. Mm. And that allowed me to and gave me the opportunity to understand the role of leadership and the complexities of you know, educational challenges in Qatar and in the region at that time. Then moved to Cambridge and joined a group at the Faculty of Education called Leadership for Learning under the supervision of John Gray and Darlene Opfer. And that helped me and gave me the opportunity to go more in-depth in, in, in research and from theories and from practices as well and focus on leadership role in the education transformation and reform in Qatar. But, you know, doing your PhD, you have to look at the global scale. Then joined WISE, and as you know, one of our key tracks and strategy is the educational leadership. And this is really an opportunity through the platform like WISE to continue working with local schools, global schools as well, and global partners to advance this agenda. And this is what we are trying to do through all. And I know we will talk about it later on in details, but as a summary, I think focusing on education and leadership through my passion, through in-depth research, and also interest and the belief and the purpose of education in solving so many challenges in our world. For me, the entry point was more to do with ideas around global citizenship and connection and the sort of mindset that's needed to to help build connection with people from very different backgrounds and i was you know lucky relatively early in my career to have the chance to work in in you know places far from europe with people who've had very different education backgrounds and experiences and it was kind of through those personal experiences that started to think more about the role of education and helping develop skills and mindsets around openness and, and looking for connection and valuing difference, and which has, has sort of fed in directly into a lot of the work that we do now. You know, growing up at a time when because of affordability of air travel and also the kind of huge leaps forward in, in telecommunications and, and sort of Skype and email and all of those sorts of things mm. in the the beginning of this century, suddenly this idea of global connectedness became much more tangible um, and real. And then also, you know, understanding the, the consequences of actions, of individual action in one part of the world, how they can resonate and echo in other parts of the world, and that this idea of global connectedness was going to be really important for individuals and societies to thrive and prosper in this century and understand their, their collective responsibilities. That is a really powerful point about the time that we have been operating. We've been able to be activists in this field at a local, national, international level, which I think is um, a real privilege. I mean, for me, I have to say, Basim, I began as an economist and fast realised that it's a dismal science and then <laughs> embraced politics and realised that that was a very, very messy business. And so <laughs> education seemed to me to be a, a much more, how can I put it, life-enhancing activity. Now, obviously, in the end, education requires the political economy that will sustain and enable the kind of learning system that we want. But right now, it surprises me that people 
don't appreciate that the biggest game in town is learning. I think increasingly they are. But we as teachers always knew that it was the most important. Teaching and learning was always the most important thing because it underpins every other capacity that you develop in whatever human activity we're talking about. And we only need to have a good look around the world to realise that where powerful learning does not take place, we're in serious, serious trouble. And of course, the most important example for most of us has been climate change. Without learning about your planet, how can you possibly be a steward of that? Now, working with young people, of course, is a complete and total privilege because they get it. They get it at a very young age, by the way. Uh, and of course, they're becoming increasingly active in shaping what we would see as being the future of a sustainable planet. So it's the main game in town. And then, of course, to have the opportunity to work across policy and practice and research, they're different communities, but ultimately they've got to come together. That's what Wise All In does. It brings together those various elements together with, I might say, innovation and experimentation. You then get all of the ingredients that help you to redesign the learning system. And then you've got to do it, as Asma and Dominic have said, at multiple levels. Your capacity to be able to ensure that young people can grow and develop means that you've got to attend all of the other levels. And as both Asma and Dominic have said, this is global business. Ultimately, that's what it's going to take. Now, you know, we're lucky that Wires All In gathers together people who are system leaders. But we don't mean systems only being at the centre or in a vertical sense, right? We mean ecosystems, which is the other language that we've been embracing now for a number of years because this gives us the opportunity to think about all of the other players, the other stakeholders that can come together in Dominic's point about cooperation and collaboration. If we think we can do this by ourselves, we will fail. There's a much bigger educator workforce than those who regard themselves as professional educators. And there's allied professionals who are completely crucial to this agenda. I've got a daughter who's a clinical psychologist who says that she's saving the world person by person. And I've got a son who's a social entrepreneur who says he's going to try and do it sooner because he'll do it group by group, country by country. <laughs> it's an interesting conversation about how what our theory of change is. Yes, we are absolutely committed to a theory of change which is fueled by learning. That's the thing that's going to get us through this most challenging of times. And by the way, as Asma said, the personal characteristics of flexibility, of being adaptive, right, of actually recognising how you need to organise. That's our world. It's going to be more disruptive. It's going to require more adaptation and more flexibility and more community movement and organisation in order to make sure that we can achieve what we want to achieve here. So there's a lovely through line from who we are as people and the capacities we've got and what the capabilities are that you need as a leader and then ultimately what you need to do at a system level. That's the wise all-in special source, right? That's what mm. actually drives us. And we can, we've figured out that if we do that together, we've got half a chance of making a very big difference. Just to kind of riff off what Tony was saying is the opportunity to be doing this kind of work now we're very fortunate to be doing it. I think if we were trying to do this kind of work in the 80s or the 90s, it would be a very different external environment. It's this, this idea around you know, how sort of Reagan and, and Thatcher economic models were focused very much on individualism and that that was a sort of dominant societal ethos and that we're now moving back to a stronger sense of 
the importance of community and together and collaboration, and perhaps because it's a reaction against a number of decades of a focus on individualism, or perhaps because the scale of the planetary challenge that is going to impact on all of us is such that it needs a collective effort. There's a, a fantastic book by, I think her name is Narina Hertz, an academic in London called The Lonely Century, about the kind of move away from individualism. And she has a, a fantastic statistic. Broadly speaking, it's kind of in the 50s and 60s, the, the dominant pronoun in pop music around the world was we or a plural you. And then towards the end of the 70s and through the 80s and the 90s, I is the dominant pronoun. And this is true, I think, in, in English and in Chinese in Turkish uh, and in German. And what we're just now beginning to see is more of a return to the we and, and the you rather than a focus on the individual. So f- to the extent that pop music lyrics are a barometer of wider societal change, I think that's an encouraging trend. So clearly, uh, I'm getting a sense that the answer to address these problems in the world needs a collective effort. But working in a collective effort, especially when it entails policy decision-making on a systematic level, is often quite a huge task or sometimes even insurmountable. So I want to know what makes something like All In possible. Maybe, Dr. Asma, you can expand upon that. What brought the idea to make something like All In? And, And how did you convince so many people from around the world? How do you all work together to work towards this common goal in an age where individualism is, as you touched upon, Dominic, is often thriving over collective efforts. Just to comment on the earlier point uh, Tony mentioned, and this is linked to why we launched and created such network. It's uh, because the field of education is evolving and it's evolving rapidly. There are disruptors, there is disruption, and surprises will come in the future. So how to equip leaders at different levels with the skills and mindset? We need to think about how to adapt to the changing landscape before COVID, during COVID, and and after. And this is really related to the leadership and how we can empower learners and empower teachers. And also, uh, I think a theme came uh, earlier, building the collaborative networks. We don't want to compete. We need to collaborate around shared values and goals. So the WISE All In, the Agile Leaders of Learning Innovation Network, was established in 2017. If you remember, Tony, with Simon Brickspear, we invited people. It was like 30 people over lunch during the first day of WISE. And we had four um, objectives to what do we want as a short term. But from the beginning, we know what is missing and where are the gaps. Uh, If we look at the research, it it shows that school leadership is a critical factor in improving student learning outcomes and overall success um, for learners and schools in general. But this is not Uh, the case when we look at reality, because despite all this evidence, there has been a decline, for example, in investment in school leadership by governments and systems over the past two decades. Adding to this, the earlier point when we talk about the changing landscape of learning and schooling, especially during and after COVID, 
So lacking the necessary leadership to guide educators and learners in this uncertain world, this is what we are trying to focus on by building a community of educational leadership who are equipped with the knowledge and skills to support and advance this agenda. And I think having WISE as a global platform with our amazing community, but also emphasizing on the role of our partners, Dominic, Tony, and other. It's an effort that we all need to work on to improve uh, what is missing and to advance this agenda. You know, after the first meeting in, in Doha in 2017, we had our first meeting in Accra in May 2018. And to be honest, I was uh, worried that no one will come or we will not have enough people. And that was really successful. We had almost uh, 35 people who joined, mainly from Africa, but we had people who are still with us mm. from the beginning. They didn't miss any face-to-face -face meeting or online. Uh, then we continued working, especially when we have Wise Art. We organize uh, one-day uh, event before Wise Art to bring the community together. But I think from COVID, we learned that we can continue our work um, online and continue our publications. Our first publication was the ebook, The Education Disrupted, Education Reimagined, that we launched in Anga. So I think with All In, we brought a community around a shared vision. It's not an easy task, uh, especially when you think about the operation side. But I'm really proud of what we achieved. We have a lot to continue working on. We can't do it without, of course, collaboration. Uh, but we can think about it from a model or a framework perspective on how we can collaborate, how we bring people around share vision and theory of change, theory of action that allow all of us to continue working. When we look back on this period of history, you know, in amongst the trauma of the, the pandemic, if there is a kind of positive trend to emerge from this renewed emphasis on networks and collaboration and the need to work together and the, the role that technology can play in building social connectedness. So we had this weird period in human history that will hopefully never be repeated where it was really important to be physically separate from as many different people as possible. But the social connectedness that, that, that Zoom and all the other platforms enabled was invaluable at that time. So I, I work at a relatively small NGO or think tank called Salzburg Global Seminar. We have really valued the, the opportunity to be part of the Wise All In network and the, the education, disruptive education reimagined series that we worked on back in 2020 was amazing. It's sort of the, the creativity that was coming out of the education sector at that time in responding to the very peculiar specific set of um, COVID-related circumstances, but then that also went on to act as a catalyst for more radical thinking about, you know, are, are we using the time that we get to spend with, with young people in education in the most useful way for their, you know, for their lives that they um, will go on to lead in the 21st century. And I think that you know, a lot of the work that happened in 2020 and 2021 fed into some of the, the global thinking around the need for transformation at this point in time. It was interesting that just recently I was asked to reflect on roles that we play as leaders. And I think, Basim, the way in which you 
opened this up as being a leadership challenge. We've all exercised leadership, but the kind of leadership we're exercising now is of a different order. I would argue that when I began the work, I was leading with and through organisations as their representative. Yep. And then I thought, look, I need to become more entrepreneurial. Yep. <laughs> we need to create new agencies and new organisations that can seed something of the future that we want. And then I devoted myself to being a networker. Yeah. And then I realised, well, actually, that's not enough. You've got to be able to convene people and have legitimacy to bring people together. The lifeblood of an ecosystem is networks, the connectedness that Dominic has talked about. So I think we're in a space where, you know, every time you have these conversations, the kind of C's that come out, you know, the collaborative, the creative, the cooperative, there's a lot of contest over these ideas. But I I think what has emerged is that we understand that the way in which you can advance a new agenda, particularly if it's a transformation agenda, and if you're trying to advance it as a leader, then you need to understand that you have to do the work differently because you're effectively enrolling an ecosystem of players. That is a very, very different game. It's the reason why the politics of education and the politics of so many areas are not adequate in its current form to get you the change. I'm not being critical of politicians. In fact, I admire politicians. It's the toughest game in town. But we need to actually support politicians to become braver and more courageous and believe that the public will follow them around powerful ideas. And saving the planet is not a small idea. It's not just a question about government. It's about governance at multiple levels and the cooperation that can take place across national boundaries. In fact, we have to engage with the new economy and actually support a new politics. We're on a society that's cohesive, right? Not one that's disintegrating and fracturing every day. That is a very big leadership challenge. And learning is the way in which we're going to get through this. A final PS is, I don't want this to sound like, you know, it's all amazingly evolved human beings with a capacity to do this work. We stumble, okay? And by the way, some of us don't mind exercising a few of the dark arts every now and again in order to try and make sure that we can persuade people about the importance of this agenda. So it's a great game to be in, but it's a tough game. As David Putnam, the great film director, once said when we developed uh, the first of a series of these promotional documentaries about education, we called it We Are the People We've Been Waiting For. I think that's a really powerful thought. It's not somebody else that's going to do that. It's us. We're going to do it. It's our agency, our passion, our purpose, our contribution. That's what's going to make the difference. I think those are words to live by, Anthony. Fantastic way to wrap up the conversation. But I'm tempted to ask one more question just to top it all off, which is really, I mean, I'm getting a sense that leadership in essence must transform with the times, with the challenges that we face, which are constantly evolving. I mean, going back to something that Dominic mentioned, how creativity was just off the rails during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, How does leadership transform in the age of AI? Well, I think I will look at it from a different angle here. I think we should look at it from how to transform education systems by advancing leadership, either in the age of AI, either in the disruption of COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the climate change and other challenges that we are facing and we will face 
it's more about, as I mentioned earlier, to focus on three main areas. You know, AI is one challenge, but we have other challenges to focus on research, practice, and advocacy and policies. Tony mentioned, you know, how to support policymakers. And I think in any uncertainty or in specific agenda, I think if we can support education through combining research, policy, and practice, I think that will help a lot. Will it bring researchers with practitioners, with policymakers? That's the combination that we should advance because there is a huge gap uh, in the work I'm doing and globally as well, you know, through the work of our research reports, for example, at WISE, we can't, as a research community, we can't achieve or implement these recommendations without the role of policymakers, without the role of practitioners and leaders in schools and in education systems. So I think either AI or other challenge combining these three, and I will end with also focusing on the human side. I think we also learned uh, about this during COVID. We learned that kids, learners, they need the social aspect and we can't bring it through AI and machine learning. Yes, we need the advancement of technology, but we can't neglect the importance of teachers and having face-to-face conversation and the role of leaders to support, empower uh, teachers. This is the transformation I'm I'm looking for and I'm hoping to achieve through the work of WISE in general, but also through all and, and our partners. It's really well said. We might look back on this time and it might not be seen as only the age of AI or AI isn't the the only dominant new trajectory in education or in societal thinking. A lot of our collective work is also looking at intergenerational leadership in this space. What are the skills and behaviours that lead to power sharing rather than a power shift for example, you know, and how does that impact on different yeah. generations in different ways? And that has a long-term future-facing dimension to it because it is about issues of, you know, changes that we make in education will hopefully echo through the rest of this century and, you know, have an impact on decision-making and, and the way in which future generations behave. Hopefully we'll be able to look back on it and see that as, as profound an impact in education. And so obviously it's not only us who are working on intergenerational leadership. With specifically with AI, I think it is in, in many ways analogous to the, the kind of smartphone revolution, isn't it? That it suddenly gives you access as a leader or as a decision maker. It gives you access to infinitely vaster range of resources and knowledge and, and insight than was previously ever accessible. But then it's also really important about how you frame the questions that you're asking of AI in order to get useful insight rather rather than insights that might lead you in the wrong direction. I had a a really great story from an academic friend who's at a university who'd had had some issues with students using ChatGPT to plagiarize essays, and they'd all been caught using some of the plagiarism software. And what they then found had happened was that subsequent students were asking ChatGPT to write the essay for them, but were also asking it to include two or three basic factual errors that it wouldn't normally make to try and beat the plagiarism (laughs) software. So the the sort of sophistication (laughs) around how you use it will evolve continually. And, you know, it's incumbent upon anyone who aspires or is in a leadership position to be aware of the, the risks around that and how do you use it as a force for good, hopefully. 
Well, Buster, my this final question is the question. Leadership in an AI world, yeah? I mean, we're faced with human learning and machine learning. It would be highly desirable if we don't see them in competition. We want to become first-class human beings, not second-class robots. And we should mm-hmm. embrace the machine world in ways that enhance our humanity. Now, you can't do that unless the leadership displays ethical decision-making. You can't do it unless the leadership is committed to complex problem solving. You can't do it unless you employ adaptive expertise. So there's no lack of leadership capabilities that are required in order to navigate your way through this particular moment of evolution. We want to be the authors of our own future. You've got to exercise leadership, right? And I love that, Dominic. It's not just a few, it's many. And it's not just one part of the demographic, it's all. It's not just about power shifts, it's about power sharing. That means you must be very clear about your purpose. Your purpose here is, as we have said, to look after ourselves, others and the planet. That's a purpose for learning. And then you better do it for everybody because if equity is not in the equation of leadership, we're in serious trouble. And if the technology privileges some above others, then we've got a power struggle, um, not actually power shared. And if you don't keep on innovating and experimenting, then we won't get to a point where we can see how we can improve the conditions under which we are living. And by the way, again, to preach the gospel of ecosystem, don't try and do this through the old system. It won't work, right? And by the way, it would be helpful if a few more people were a bit more futures literate. Because (laughs) if you can't anticipate the future, as a discipline, you're in serious trouble because these things come at you with no warning. The leadership task in the way that all of us have referred to the challenges is the challenge and it's a very different set of competencies and tasks that we need to undertake as leaders now in, as you say, an AI world because that AI world has all of the dimensions that we've been talking about over the last hour and this requires a different kind of leadership to be able to get us to a point where we really do feel that we can be human-centred and that we can actually create a world that's worth living in. That would be highly desirable. Fantastic way to wrap it up as always. I could go on for another two, three hours on this podcast, to be honest with you all. I have a list of questions that I didn't even touch, maybe like another page or two. So, I mean, this definitely needs to be an ongoing conversation. We can tackle this subject in the future from so many angles. But I think this was a fantastic introductory conversation into why transformational leadership is really the answer to solving the education system's problems in the future. So I thank you all for your wise words and I hope to see you again on the show we might look